Hello, and welcome to Listed, Forbes podcast about people, money, and power. I'm your co-host, Abe Brown. And I'm the other co-host, Maggie McGrath. And today, we're talking about Star Wars creator and billionaire, George Lucas. Was that the real one? I, you know what, I'm stumped, but I don't think so. No, I think I think we just got the drunken cantina version of the theme because we're not going to pay George Lucas the licensing fee for that uh, classic score. By John Williams. By John Williams. I think we need more advertisers. I think if we get some advertisers on board for this pod, then we can afford the real music. So, um, Blue Apron, come find us. I, I'm already a Blue Apron subscriber. <laughs> They did not pay us to say that. No, but I I can do the ad read already in my sleep. I think we should stop giving away the house for free. That's true. But speaking of the house, I want to start this episode by giving credit to the woman who gave us the idea for this episode. Hi, Mrs. McGrath. Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening and for the idea. We were looking to see, you know, who else from the Forbes list should we talk about? And my mom said George Lucas because she loves watching movies. My dad loves watching movies. As a family, I grew up watching movies, including Star Wars. Here's where I have to confess I'm not much of a fan. I don't remember much from the movies. It just, I didn't retain it. It didn't capture my imagination the way other franchises, but you've had an entirely different experience with it. Well, apparently moms love Star Wars, and my mom showed it to me before she showed me Sesame Street or anything that is more appropriate for children. And I am now, I've seen all the movies. I haven't done fully the comic books or the non-canon or the video games. You know, I haven't left the solar system entirely on this subject, but I am a Star Wars fan. As just about every fan in the universe knows, uh, Star Wars Episode Nine will be hitting theaters on December 20th. The occasion of this newest installment has given us an opportunity to look back at all the other ones, and crucially, the man behind this storied franchise, George Lucas. Helping us to get inside the mind of this mad genius is Rob LaFranco, Forbes's media and entertainment editor so committed to his scarf collection that he has entered our 80-degree studio with his neck fully covered. Many Bothans died to bring him here today. It's our media and entertainment editor, Rob LaFranco. Hi, Rob. Rob, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Before we start talking about George Lucas, I want to know, what's your earliest Star Wars memory? I remember going to the original Star Wars. It was me, my father, and two of my cousins. And I actually stepped out with my cousin John to get some popcorn the moment that they blew up the planet and I missed it <laughs> and I didn't see it again until I was like 27 years old uh, and a million voices cried out in terror as they were silenced yeah we came back we were shocked <laughs> my other cousin Mark said you missed the best thing ever <laughs> yeah it was sad wait so is that the how did you leave in that moment like there's build up to that you know, I was a restless, I'm going to say, 11-year-old kid. I can't remember how old I was oh, at the You time. were restless at 11? That's super hard to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just time to go out and get popcorn, I guess. All right. It's well, always time for popcorn. Yeah. So that's your earliest memory 
of Star Wars. When you've been covering Hollywood off and on for us for the better part of 25 years? Uh, For Forbes and others for the better part of two decades, let's say, yeah. So today, George Lucas is number 107 on the Forbes 400, our list of the richest Americans. He is worth $5.9 billion. He sold Lucasfilm to Disney in 2012 for $4.1 billion in stock and cash. But we have to go back to the 70s to understand where all of this wealth came from, right? Um, yeah, you know, um, Lucas was part of a, a generation of film directors that has been immortalized in, in, the, uh, in the Siskin book. Um, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and you know it was a small group of very talented directors that included Steven Spielberg, Lucas himself, Martin Scorsese, William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, others as well. But those are sort of the marquee names. Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola was one of them, um, and they, uh, you know, they call it the golden age of filmmaking, if you will. Um, and it was a time when you know directors were, you know. Films were not being made in sort of that 1950s, 1960 kind of formulaic kind of way. It was, I've got this voice, I've got this vision, and I'm going to put it on film. So there's a group of guys in Hollywood. They're all trying to make very auteur films, but Lucas stands apart from them, correct? Yeah, so, you know, he he, he did, at Coppola's um, urging, make American Graffiti, which was extremely cheap to shoot and did incredibly well. And that set him on a path of he was a superstar director at that point. And he had this vision, this dream for a science fiction fantasy film that was in the vein of the, you know, Flash Gordon TV series from the 50s, where it was it was very superficial and very campy and, you know, very, you know, sort of always on the edge of your seat. You know, each sort of sequence, I guess, ended with sort of a cliffhanger. Um, But it had this overarching kind of spiritual element to it that resonated with people on a much deeper level, even though it was, you know, pretty surface level um, entertainment. The thing is that it, it was just not considered high art at a time when high art was, you know, the, the, the rage in Hollywood. So it was a hard movie to sell and no one really wanted it. And so when he finally made the deal uh, with 20th Century Fox, who agreed to, to, to distribute the film, they didn't see any future in it. They figured they can make some money on it, but they didn't see the future that he saw or was willing to take a bet on. And so he was able to get things like control of all of the sequels in perpetuity and the merchandise, which, of course, it was the merchandise early on that enabled him to finance the second film. And once he financed that second film, which became a blockbuster, at that point, he was not in need of anybody's money and was pretty much able to do whatever he wanted So Lucas really just takes the reins, right? Like, to my eye, before this episode, he seemed quite similar to Steven Spielberg. But what I'm hearing from you is the ultimate difference is his control. Because he then pioneers all this effects technology in the 90s. He licensed video games. He has the platform for Pixar. He's taking risks and reaping the rewards in a way that makes him more money than any of his director buddies. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, Lucas, he he kind of stands apart when you talk about deal making in Hollywood, if you compare him to somebody like, say, Steven Spielberg, who has a much more traditional deal, which is, hey, I'm good. And by the time you know I'm good, I'm going to milk you for all the money that I can. And as Spielberg himself told Forbes back at that era, I want no risk. I want gross. In other words, you, the studio, take all the risk. Me, the talent, gets all the profits, mm-hmm. or at least half the profits. Lucas had a 
completely different mindset. And I think he and Spielberg approach the different the business very differently. Mm-hmm. Spielberg appears to be much more of a money-oriented character, extremely talented and creative, whereas Lucas always said, I don't really care about the money. What I want is the control. And very, very few people in Hollywood take that kind of risk because they don't have to. If you're a big talent, the studio's and now the streaming services and the other distributors, they throw money at you. But Lucas was adamant about the fact that he wanted to have control and he was going to take the risk to do it. I don't know if I fully buy that. Lucas being more about creative control and Spielberg being more about the money. Lucas is extremely entrepreneurial. I think he is probably a little bit disingenuous when he says he's not about the money. Because I think you're right, Abe, in that sense. Control is money. Money is control, vice versa. Um, I think he's most likely honest when he says that's not, I didn't set out to be a billionaire. Um, you know, the thing about Hollywood, and you'll hear this over and over from, you know, right now there's this this um, sort of tension that's going on in Hollywood with the creative community, especially in the TV world, uh, that is butting up against the streaming industry and the, you know, the economics that have turned very successful talented people, the creators of the biggest hit television shows, Friends, Seinfeld, um, South Park, etc., they're turning the economics of that upside down so that all of the upside is going to the, the streaming companies. And this has the creative community in, in a tizzy because it used to be, hey, when I hit a blockbuster hit, the money, I make a boatload of money. Um, and that always gave the the talent and their agents and their lawyers an enormous amount of power and that power is now being taken away and and it's really it really is the biggest crisis for that community right now so for a guy like Lucas or Spielberg or Scorsese or any of those top talents you don't get the control that you want because ultimately what these people want is final cut i don't want any person in a suit to tell me what I can do with the ending of my movie, that I'm the director, right? That's what they want. And Hollywood is a community that revolves around money. So you don't have the control without the money, and without the money, you don't get the control. So it's, you know, if he says, hey, I didn't set out to do it for the money, okay, but if you set out to do it for the control, by extension, you've done it for the money, because the one doesn't come without the other. Rob, you and I were talking the other day about what is Lucas's core skill? And we were kind of saying he's not much of a writer. Despite this storyline capturing so much of the public consciousness, He, what is, what is he good at? What's his secret sauce? He will say that he's, he's good at um, creating cinematic expression, for lack of a better word. So apparently the way he works, which is very different from, from say, Spielberg or Scorsese, who will pour over the script and you know, make every line perfect. Certainly that's a Scorsese approach. Spielberg probably has his writers to do it. Whereas Lucas kind of has an outline draft, if you will. Think of it as, you know, bullet points when you're making a speech where you're going to kind of ad-lib the speech and you just want to hit certain points. But what seems to happen on the Lucas set is that he's not the one ad-libbing. It's the actors or other, other you know, um allies on the set. There is a line that as I was preparing for this and looking at some old articles, there was a line that Harrison Ford said to him. You sure can write this, but but you can't can't say it. it. He actually was more colorful. He said, George, you can write this crap, but no one can say it. (laughs) Um, And you know, that famous line, um, which by the way, I am on video at the 
the release of the first, I think it was the first prequel outside the Chinese theater on Sunset Boulevard with my girlfriend at the time, where um, they were filming people to say their favorite lines from Star Wars. So it's probably somewhere on the internet that I'll be embarrassed Wait, about. Wait, can we find it? Can we find uh, it? You can look for it and see. <laughs> this, is Groman's, uh, it's, this is Groman's Chinese Groman's Theater. Chinese Theater. It was me and I'm sure hundreds and hundreds of other people. So trying to find me in that is probably so tough. What is your, so what is your favorite line? So I said to her, I said, say I love you. So she says, I love you. And I said, I know. And then you got frozen in carbonite. <laughs> exactly. But that line wasn't written in the original script. That was ad-libbed by Harrison Ford. So, <laughs> because Lucas could not have expressed emotion in any of his dialogue. No, and writing the words I love you apparently is beyond his skill set. So. Seems pretty basic. <laughs> so he does not consider himself uh, a screenwriter, even though he's technically written all of the Star Wars movies. It's interesting, too. I was doing some reading. Apparently his first wife was, some have described her as the heart of the movie, and she may not have ad-libbed, but I think she advocated for some of the ad-libbing in the production process and preserve some of those more human moments within Star Wars. So I was doing a little research on her last night, too. Marsha, I believe is her name. Marsha, yeah. She wins an Academy Award for film editing, for editing the very first one, which, and she's responsible for the the climactic battle, apparently, who took George's mess and made it into, you know, the the, the very well-done battle sequence that looks like it's, you know, something out of a World War II movie in space. And I, she is somehow completely lost to... Uh, the, the mists of time, unfairly. There is a 2008 book called The Secret History of Star Wars. Uh, her name, her full name, Marsha Lucas, uh, made a name Griffin. Um, and in the book is described as uh, the secret weapon to the movies. And as we have discussed in prior pods, including the one about Mackenzie Bezos, I am fascinated by women who are kind of the secret sauce to their husband's success because it's so hard to quantify, but it's hugely influential. And especially if George Lucas is a bit emotionally blocked and she found those moments, like you can have the big battles. And maybe this is why I've been turned off as a viewer. I don't need all the explosions. I like the emotional heart to a story. So I guess I like indie films more so than than, than big intergalactic battles. but Well, the brain trust um, approach always works. You know, behind every great Barack, there's a Michelle, or behind every great Michelle, there's a Barack, right? And so that, that would make total sense that someone in his camp, whether it's his wife or somebody else, would fill in the blanks where he comes up short. I mean, you know, Spielberg is very sort of charming and almost kind of, you know, almost like a little boy. He's kind of playful, whereas Lucas is much more cerebral and kind of unapproachable. He's very, he's kind of distant and aloof, right? So he wouldn't necessarily have that heart to bring to it. Um, But, you know, you wonder, like, what is this staying power of Star Wars? Because it it really is. I mean, it is the equivalent. You talk about Star Wars. It's now owned by Disney, but it's the equivalent of saying Disney. It's a brand in and of itself. And it has the magic of, being very accessible, surface-level entertainment that has this overarching theme of, you know, Joseph Campbell was a, was a big inspiration for him, apparently, the, the, the professor who wrote The Hero of a Thousand Faces, which is essentially, you know, it's Luke Skywalker is our hero from Star Wars, but every culture has a hero that goes through the same kind of arc of experience and it's almost like a religious expression. And sometimes you hear Lucas talk about it, and it's almost with a religious rapture when he talks about the Force. Apparently, he's a believer in the Force. <laughs> of course he is. <laughs> um, but that doesn't necessarily make him a, you know, the kind of human director who would who would 
bring in those touches that you're looking for or might be looking for. That's really interesting. So did he know what he had back in the 70s, or do you think the success has surpassed even his imaginations? Hard to say, but, you know, a, a good source of mine for years uh, it was a guy named Tom Pollock, who was um, Lucas's attorney. And uh, Pollock says, it, you know, every attorney in Hollywood would say, it was my idea. Um, he says it was his idea to go and um, go back to Fox and say this was the second film now. We don't want your money. It was a huge hit, but it was clear after the success of the first one that they had or he had already negotiated the or he and Pollock had negotiated the merchandise rights and the sequel rights. So now they're sitting in this catbird seat where every studio in Hollywood is pretty much going to throw you anything and they may might have been saying we're going to give you 75 million to do this movie George and you know we'll give you 25% off the and he said no, I I'm going to make this film for 30 million dollars of my own money. I'm going to pay you a 12% distribution fee. Um, and that was the deal that they negotiated, and that's the deal whether it's still 12%, I don't know. Well, at the at the time, and even today, that's such um, it's just such a rare thing to do. So the fact that they did it would tell you, yeah, they knew that they had something big here. Um, maybe they didn't know how far they were going to take it, but they knew that they were, by risking $30 million, they were going to walk away with hundreds of millions rather than, say, $100 million. So, Rob, I want to talk more about Lucas selling Lucasfilms to Disney. Tell us about that deal. How did that come to fruition? And where are we now? There was a point, I think, uh, George Lucas was in his late 60s at the time, and it had started started to dribble out that he was maybe thinking of stepping back a little bit. You know, he'd achieved what he'd achieved. And, you know, he was still running Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic, and yeah, he I guess he wanted to slow down. Iger had, Bob Iger, that is the CEO of Disney, had picked up on some of this and pretty much over a casual lunch suggested, you know, I'd be very interested, George. And when George Lucas apparently replied, I'm thinking about it, but maybe, you know, that was a year and a half, I think, before the deal was ultimately made. And, you know, I I think for Lucas, it was a time to sort of all right, I've I've hit the end of my Star Wars run. Um, I did everything I wanted to do with it. And for Iger and Disney, it was, okay, we've built this portfolio of incredible film libraries, and this is one of the definitive film libraries out there, and it's potentially for sale. So it was a natural, it was definitely a natural fit for Disney. Now, the interesting thing, just in the numbers of that, is, you know, when he th- says, I'm not, you know, he's not a businessman, right? So if Rupert Murdoch were in charge of Lucasfilm, I'm sure it would have been sold for twelve billion dollars, right? I mean, look at look at the numbers of look at what Disney bought, right? They bought Marvel, which they paid about four billion dollars for. They bought Lucasfilm, which they paid about four billion dollars for, and then they bought Pixar, which was seven or eight billion dollars, I think it was. Mm. Like, um, and Lucas created Pixar essentially. He created the platform that became Pixar. And Steve Jobs turned it into Pixar, which Disney then paid almost double what they paid for Lucasfilm. So, you know, he I don't think that he he's not a businessman and he says that. I don't think he set out to create an empire. I think what he set out to do was was to tell this this kind of spiritual story um, in a cinematic way. 
All right, Rob, we've been talking about Lucas as a public figure and a businessman, but we like to have some fun segments on this show that let us imagine what it would be like if we were one of his friends. So the first segment we have is called Sidebar. Oh boy, I think I'm going to take my scarf off for this one. Sidebar is where we ask, would you want to take George for a drink? Where would you go? And what would you drink? Good question. Um... Sure, I would. I would much prefer having, honestly, a drink with Steve Buscemi. I think it would be a hell of a lot more fun. <laughs> In which case, I would do shots of tequila. But with George, I would feel I had to be a little... I would wear my scarf with Buscemi. I'd probably... You have a, to put on your nice scarf. Though. I would be afraid to take it with Buscemi because I'd probably throw up all over it by the end of the night. But with Lucas, I feel like I would have to be refined. I'd sip on a Negroni or an Aperol spritz on the you know porch of a nice hotel somewhere. Um... But sure, I can think of a lot of things I'd like to ask him, sure. Abe, what about you? Oh, yes. And I know where I'm going. I'm going to Galaxy's Edge. You know what Galaxy's Edge is? Galaxy's Edge is the uh, part of Disneyland that will open and be Star Wars themed. And I can't think of any place I'd rather go and drink with George than there. I would also go for a drink with George. Um, I would like to go to the TWA Hotel at JFK. The traffic at JFK scares me. The security at JFK scares me. I don't even know if I'd need to go through security to get to the TWA Hotel, but I feel like George could get me past all of the red tape and get me into this very swanky drink lounge. Um, I'm not super creative, so I would probably just have a whiskey neat. I think the atmosphere would be everything. All right. I think it's time for triplicate. getting more complicated. Yeah, it's our last one. Don't be so scared. <laughs> it's basically a game of would you rather. So would you rather be George Lucas's agent, lawyer, publicist, or droid? Oh, I would want to be the droid. I would be cared for and loved. Well, I'd probably <laughs> I'd want to be the droid. I Certainly not as publicist. Um, might be fun to be if I'd Lawyer would be second. Nobody wants to be an agent unless you're an agent because it's just a horrible way to make a living. But <laughs> I, I would want to be droid because I think it'd be kind of cool to be a droid. Yeah. Yeah. But if I've had to take number two, it'd be the lawyer. See, I was going to say agent because it feels like George Lucas is such a control freak. It would render my job just totally useless and I could sit back and have a front seat to history being made. No, you'd probably just be fired. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Abe, who do you say? I'm going droid, too, because I feel like George Lucas will be, you know, the one to create the first sentient droid, and I will just take over the universe. Mm, he is a power man, isn't he? Yeah, always always looking for that control. All right, Rob, may the force be with you. And, and also with you? That's a very Catholic <laughs> response, but very well done. All right, it's time for our final segment. It's last but not least. I think I want to go to another galaxy so I don't have to hear you do that again. Abe, what do you got for us today? So in the Star Wars universe, there are a tremendous amount of just great casting what-ifs. And I've got some for you. And there are some really fun, famous names who were almost in the universe but didn't quite make it. Leonardo DiCaprio was almost Anakin Skywalker in the prequels. I could see that. Yeah, it, it's just after Titanic. He's young. You know, maybe he doesn't go off to Shutter Island. He's cuter than Hayden Christensen, so <laughs> I I would have liked that as a consumer. Uh, Tupac was almost Samuel Jackson's Mace <gasps> Windu. That's awesome. It's pretty awesome. Oh, that would have been so cool. I wonder what color his lightsaber would have been. 
Mace, of course, has the only purple lightsaber in the whole film. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not even gonna touch <laughs> oh, that one. I know you're gonna love this one. Michael Jackson was almost the voice of Jar Jar Binks. It instead went to Ahmed Best. I know you're a Jar Jar Binks apologist. But I'm not a Michael Jackson apologist, which makes it so much more confusing for me. <laughs> uh, Christopher Walken and Kurt Russell uh, were considered for Han Solo. And now an actor who knows something about being a, a megalomaniac with a shrouded backstory. Orson Welles was almost the voice of Darth Vader. Oh, I like James Earl Jones. Luke, I am your rosebud. And that does it for another episode of Listed. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you very much to our guest, our very own Jedi Master, Rob LaFranco. Quick programming note, we are taking a break for a couple of weeks while we all go home for Thanksgiving and gorge on turkey, but we will be back in mid-December, so don't forget about us. We're still the new pod on the block, so we really appreciate when you rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. That's how we rise in the podcast lists, and we do want to take over the galaxy. And thank you to those of you who have rated and reviewed so far. We really appreciate your support. I'm your co-host, Dave Brown, Jedi Knight and Senior Editor at Forbes. I'm the other co-host, Maggie McGrath, simply the editor of Forbes Women. Listed as a Spoke Media production. Kieran Meadows records with us in studio, and our producer is Reva Goldberg. Our theme song is composed and performed by Will Short. Our production team is Caroline Hamilton, Tyler Norris, Janielle Kastner, and Keith Reynolds at Spoke Media. And thanks to our Jedi Council here at Forbes, Travis Collins, Kyle Kramer, Randall Lane, and Dario Fruton. Bye! What do they say after, may the Force be with you? And also with you. Do they? No, I don't know. <laughs> oh. I, they don't say anything. It's just sort of a solemn bow. It is. That's precisely what it is. Just bow solemnly. Yeah. Well, that doesn't work on podcasting. Do you, all right, do you want to try that again? <laughs>